Verse of the week is Ecclesiastes 9, the latter part of verse 12. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. And basically that's uh, going to be the theme of our message this morning. Elder Doug continues with the Precious Promise study in Sunday School. Pilgrim's Progress tonight at 6 o'clock. Please read chapter 22, first half or first third. We'll do it. Bring finger foods. Great time of discussion on tonight's on hopeful and Christian. SGBA Family Conference begins tomorrow night at uh, Faith Bible Church in Vernon, Michigan. See the board out here for instructions how to get there. It's easy. Just take 69 across. And um, we're going to have us, uh, lectures on the need for discernment. Boy, I tell you what, if ever there were a need in the Christian church today, it's discernment because there's a lot of voices out there saying different things. They can't all be right. So that'll be a tremendous, tremendous study. The special offering for camp last week took in $502, and that helped meet our obligations and in caring for staff for camp. Tremendous um, week at camp. We're going to have some reports later on in the uh, this morning's uh, program. Uh, no prayer service this week because of conference. So make the effort to get to conference. Uh, it's a little dry for us, but you know, some of the people come in from out of state. So talk about driving to come to conference. And uh, you know, we can make it in, in a relatively minor amount of time, and the profit is so much the better for it. Remember Al? He's at Ferguson's. Remember to stop in and visit him. They're pretty gracious there. So you can just about stop most any time, ring the doorbell out front. They keep the door locked, but if you ring the bell out front, they'll just hit a buzzer and let you in. And remember that we're streaming our services. Jared, are we up and running this morning? Um, we had a little problem this morning. Okay, great. And the new acts and facts are out on the uh, foyer table. Any other announcements? All right. If not, then I'll direct your attention to our scripture meditation for this morning, and that's the book of Isaiah, chapter 47. In the Pew Bible, that's page 1134. So read that quietly to yourself. Isaiah 47.
Let's stand together for prayer. Dan, would you lead us in prayer this morning, please? Remain standing for our hymns. All of the hymns today are from the Brown Hymnal. Number 234. Two verses one, two, and four on this one. One, two, and four for the last, please. pages um, forward to 325. That's more than a few, but 325, please. Let's do verses um, 1, 3, and 4. This time, 1, 3, and 4, please.
be seated. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes. Seems like we're in this book quite a bit lately. And that's because Solomon is so practical concerning the hurts of life. I mean, he, he deals with these quite a bit in the book. Hebrew, or he's Ecclesiastes 9, we're going to read the first six verses, and then we'll skip down and read also verse 11 and verse 12. Ecclesiastes 9, beginning at verse 1. So I reflected on all this, and I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good, the bad, the clean, the unclean, those who offer sacrifices, those who do not. As it is with the good man, so it is with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. Hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know what they will know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Now verse 11. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times and fall unexpected, that fall unexpectedly upon them. May the Lord bless the reading here of his holy word. Now at this time, we're going to have camp report. We do this every year. Uh, camp started last Sunday, ran through Friday. And it was an eventful week, as I'm sure we're going to hear about. So those that are going to report, if you'll come at this time. interesting things that I learned about camp is that a man named A.W. Tozer said, whatever comes into your minds about God is the most important thing about you. Okay, this week my view of God got bigger. I saw a video 
that told us about stars. Now, if the Earth was a golf ball, three school bus loads of golf balls can fill the sun. Canis Majoris is the biggest star that scientists have found so far. It is, it meant, Canis Majoris means big dog. Um, if you try to draw the sun in Canis Majoris, you can't because it is so, because Canis Majoris is so big. The sun could, would be so small that you couldn't even draw it. If the earth was a golf, if the earth was a golf ball, it would take filling the state of Texas 22 inches deep almost two feet with golf balls. At the beginning of the week, I thought of God only as a father, but Isaiah 6, one through seven, changed my whole view of God. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him was seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook the temple and filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then the one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. In this chapter, Isaiah sees the Lord God Almighty. The train of his robe filled the temple. Pastor Dean said the train of a robe is a symbol of royalty. Jesus' robe was so long and big that it filled the temple. Back then, kings were not allowed to go into the temple, but Isaiah saw the Lord in a temple on a throne. So that makes God both priest and king, like Melchizedek, who was a king and served as a priest. He foreshadowed what was yet to come. It was a wonderful week again. <clears throat> we thank you all for your prayers. We know it's just a great feeling to know you're all back here praying for us, and we definitely need it. Um, we start, you guys know how we have our committee, and we meet all year long, and there's a lot of work involved. Um, we have a lot of difficult things to work through and discuss, but in the end, it's just amazing how God pulls it all together and works out things we don't even know are going to happen. Um, I wish, as I'm at camp, I always think, oh, I just wish they could all be here with us and see this. It just, you can't even imagine it. And I think, oh, I wish I could just videotape the whole camp and come and show you glimpses of it. But my camera broke this year, so I don't have a lot of video. Um, it was a couple highlights. This one little boy we had last year that the first um, Bible session we sat down to and Pastor Dean started preaching and this little boy, I won't say his name, <laughs> we're on video. <laughs> Um, all right, whatever. Um, so he started um, just blurting out answers wrongly to rhetorical questions, and we're just like, oh no, we got problems. But through the week, we kind of learned how to work with him. He came back this year, and he was just such a different camper. And he got up for our talent show night and sang 
how great is our God? And it was just absolutely amazing. We were all wowed by how he could get up there and do that, and it was from his heart. And then we went to, um, I'll jump around, but we went to our campfire. And another thing that really impressed me, we um, had Pastor Dean come back down at the end to um, join with us. <clears throat> and we started asking the kids a couple things about uh, previous camps. And these kids are remembering things, like the phrase exactly that he had talked about two and three camps ago. And this stuff is sticking with them. And they are listening. They are so engrossed to what Pastor Dean has to say. And he's just available to these campers all the time. He came in and sat by the pool session when they're all in swimming and talked for maybe an hour with you know campers in 99 degree sun. When we found out later, there's umbrellas sitting in the, in the hut. We didn't know we're there. So anyway, he's just very devoted, and we're so thankful that God allowed him to come. We hope he can come back. The kids love him. Um, we have so many hurting kids, and to hear that um, they're opening up to us and speaking of this hurt in their families and what they have to go home to, and we just ask that you would pray for them throughout the year because they really, really need it. Um, some of them are Christian kids, and they're going back and trying to be the witness to their unsaved parents. Um, and they cling to this camp time so much. They are already counting down the days to next year's camp. Um, I think that's about it, other than to say it's just worth all the trouble and everything we have to go through to get camp done. And we can't wait till next year. Right, you guys? Once again, I was the counselor for the junior boys, and everybody says, Oh, junior boys, good luck with that. But no, I love the age and like as much work as it is to try and get them just to do simple things as to just put socks and shoes on and to make sure that they brush their teeth every night. I love it. It's such a fun, fun group of kids. And I know some of them, they're not necessarily, you know, mature enough to understand like what we're talking about and a lot of stuff that may just go right over their heads. But I could definitely see a transformation in some of them and like seeds being planted and, you know, from the beginning of the week, it was, you know, let's just draw ninjas during chapel to <laughs> let's take some notes. And I saw a few boys taking notes, and I would, like, just peek over and see what they were writing. They were right along with what Dean was saying. And so that was really encouraging to see that the seeds being planted is just up to God to let those seeds grow and to get bigger. And thank you so much for your prayers and support. Uh, camp was very tiring, but it was very rewarding. And, yeah, camp's cool. <laughs> um, this is Chelsea, and um, she has been coming to my Bible study for a few weeks, and we started praying, um, some of you might know, for her to get to camp, and she got to be there, so she's going to give her testimony about what happened, and um, so yeah. Do you want me to start with you? Hmm. Do you want me to stay next? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> like my whole testimony, or like like what happened at camp? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was really, really excited when I when Mr. Luke and Heather invited me to come to the camp because it was exactly what I had been looking for. I had been looking for something to just put all of my faith in for a while. And we watched this video, I think 
Luciana that said about she was talking about it, and it was about just how big and how strong our God is and how he's always there for you. I just, it got to me, and I broke down, and I cried for about two and a half hours straight. But on July 2nd, 2012, I was saved by the Lord at church camp, and it was the best feeling that has ever gone into me. And there is nothing in the world that could make me feel anything close to how that had, that's changed me. And I've, I'm so grateful to have especially Mr. Luke because he was my choir teacher, Mr. Luke and Andrea and Heather and everyone there for me because I, it's, it's hard for me living in my house. I've, there's a lot that I go through that I try to stay strong through, through the whole, all of it, but it's really hard and I've needed, I've needed this for a while. Don't cry. I'm not crying. <laughs> um, but it was really, I learned a lot of things about God. He's, I learned so much that I never even thought about before. He is omnipresent. He's omniscience. He has omnipotence. What else? Um, he's incomprehensible. He's incomprehensible. He's very sovereign, yes. Um, I like to say he is omni-awesome. <laughs> um, it's really amazing because I never even thought about the kind, like, I never even started to understand anything until I came to this camp. I, as soon as Pastor Dean started talking, I was entranced. It was, there's, there's not even a way to describe it. It was amazing, and I hope I get to go next year. It was really, really life-changing. So, I'm probably going to cry through the whole thing, so I apologize in advance. Um, I got to counsel with Laura again. We counseled the senior girls, and um, we had a very young cabin this year. Usually we have like 16 through like 18, 19-year-olds, and this year we had like 14 through 16-year-olds. So it was a very different year, and um, it was we went into it tired. <laughs> so we were already tired when we started. And, um, you know, getting Chelsea there. I mean, God just worked it all out. And um, I was actually able to be with her on Monday night. And I'm not going to be able to talk about it. <laughs> um, um, I actually, I asked Jared and Pastor Dean to stay in there with me because I, I didn't think that I could um, be in there and like say the right things. Um, but Pastor Dean was like, nope, you're staying. And they left. And um, I was like, oh, great. Um, and one of my other campers stayed with us, too. And um, she really stepped up, um, Sarah, my other camper. And she was talking with Chelsea and just giving her testimony. And as amazing as it was to be there when Chelsea was saved, that was also amazing because God worked through one of my campers as well. And um, uh, it just, it's so humbling to be there and to do nothing and just to watch it happen. Because I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I can't do this, I can't do this, and I'm, that is right thinking because I cannot do it. 
and um, God gave me words to say, albeit they were jumbled and nervous words to say, but he, and then he just did it. And I'm sitting there going, well, what do we do next? Like, what happens now? Like, I don't know. And so I told Chelsea, I went, go tell people. It's like, go tell everybody what God just did. And my whole view of God changed in that entire moment. I was completely humbled. And, you know, we sit around and we say, God is in control, God is in control. But then we go around again and we doubt him. And we don't trust in him. But watching it happen and doing nothing, it... I can't even explain it. I wish everybody could have been in the chapel that night and seen it and just witnessed it. It was amazing. Um, so, I mean, I've always been saying, why did this Bible study happen? Why did I only get to have her there for three weeks? And I honestly believe it was to get her to camp and to get in for God to save her. And um, it has nothing to do with me. Um, and I also had opportunity to talk to a few of our other girls that um, I was really worried about. and. God opened doors and he got things done and he's he's big and he's awesome and um, we don't understand how big he is. He God, he's has, he has everything ready and he has everything just happening and Pastor Dean as much time as he took with the campers, he also took time with the counselors and he he cares and he counsels and he encourages and um, that's awesome. I mean we get just as much out of the week as the campers do. So um, thank you for your prayers. And um, it just was an amazing week. It's a, it was an exhausting week, but a good exhausting. So that's what I have to say about that. Um don't really have much to say. They've covered most of it. Uh, I had the senior guys as my my group. Um, I was counseling them, and they're uh, they're not really senior guys. They're like eighth and ninth graders, and then I had one senior guy. <laughs> so they're a little. They're still worried about building bows and arrows and <laughs> and forts more and, and pranking the girls more than anything else. So it's a little more difficult with them you know they're not interested in personal time and interaction and things they're they're just kind of messing around but trying to get them to focus and stuff um, I never had to I never had to get after them in the chapels or anything um, or in the Bible classes uh, because again to repeat what they've all said uh, when Pastor Dean starts talking you you can't not listen he's very engaging and has a lot of knowledge God has blessed him with a lot of intellectual knowledge and uh, and a great way of presenting it to everybody that's easy to understand and if it's not easy to understand he will make it easier to understand <laughs> um, so that was really great and then uh, seeing I had one uh, the senior camper that I did have is uh, I've had him for three years now and seeing the growth in his life has been really cool seeing him become the leader there was a problem one night with the boys they, that I wasn't aware of, and one of them came to him to tell him that there was a problem um, to uh, figure out what he should do. You know, he saw him as this leader. Him, he wasn't participating in what was going on, and uh, they they saw that that he wasn't doing something that was wrong, and they knew that he was somebody that they could talk to to 
to tell on, if you will, but not, you know, to, to ask. And then he came, in turn, he came to me and informed me what was going on. But uh, just to see his leadership stepping up was really cool. Um, so that's, that's, that's my story. I really like Rachel first, so. <laughs> that was the one I was going to talk about was the Isaiah passage where the, uh, he's like, even these like six-winged celestial guys are just like bowing down before God. And it's just like, wow, why am I not doing that now? <laughs> Okay, um, three. this is my third summer at camp. First summer, I was the camp director's wife and runner. That's what I did. Took care of babies because I brought my babies with me. Last year, I was the camp counselor of the junior girls. This year, I was also the counselor of the junior girls as opposed to junior high girls, not the junior, not the junior high girls, um, junior girls. Um, wasn't really involved a whole lot with what was going on the first year I was there. Didn't, you know, I was, but I wasn't. I had a newborn. <laughs> it's hard to be involved. Last year, camp was a bit overwhelming. It was, I'd never been as a camper. <laughs> First time going as a counselor. Whoa, talk about jumping in the deep end of the ocean. Yes, <laughs> that was me. Um, but to see my girls, I had all the same girls this year. One moved up to the junior high cabin and one didn't. Come. So I had seven girls in my cabin with my co-counselor. And to see them from last year to this year, pretty cool stuff. They weren't falling asleep in chapel. They weren't falling asleep doing devotions at 9.30 at night when we've gone through this entire day of stuff and they are so exhausted. They remembered stuff from chapel that Dean was teaching on. And they just volunteered it. You know, it's, um, um, Nina Sanders was my co-counselor and she led the devotions and um, they just volunteer stuff. Oh, did you hear this? This is what the, he said about God today. Did you guys get this? And they would share among themselves. And it's just an amazing, amazing thing to be a part of, to see that God lets us just to glimpse that. And um, just thank you all so much for praying. And you know the issues we had this week, and I'll let Jared talk about that. But um, thank you so much. Um, what price can you put on a soul. Um, when you think about the work and the time and the effort that goes into camp, does it matter for one person to come to know Christ? It does. I think about the fact that it is spiritual warfare at camp. Many kids don't know Christ. If you think this is a camp where a lot of kids come and, and it's for Christian kids to kind of pal around and, and that kind of stuff, it, it isn't really. A lot of kids don't know Christ. It's a mission of which this church is greatly involved. We send our, our money and we send our people to be involved in this mission, and it's worth it. It is so worth it. The messages are timely. God has used these three years to, to really grow. I can see the growth of my own children for being there. I've grown as a person, not just being there for the week, but being involved in the planning and the prayer support that comes 
uh, for this camp. Camp is over for this, for this year, but it needs prayer all the time, all the time. Many kids uh, that come to this have major problems, and we need to be, as a church, lifting up these children uh, to God. I'm very thankful for the messages. The, the subject was, Behold Your God. And we witnessed the miraculous power of God in bringing a soul from death to life. We saw it there. I mean, we talked about the expanse of the universe and, and how f microscopically that God designs his creation. From the largest to the smallest, it's tremendous the scope of his power and yet at the same time he cares about every single individual it was an awesome time we said on Thursday morning I think it was in the staff meeting that this would be about the time where Satan would be attacking and, and, and trying to distract and little did I know at that moment that I would be the object of distraction uh, and through his providence he warned me through our nurse that I needed to go and uh, I did but leaving the camp at that moment was one of the hardest things I've had to do but I'm very thankful for the time that we had and I would go through it again if the result was that someone would know Christ thank you for your prayer it was was well placed and God answered. Thank you, guys. Now we get to stand up and sing. Please stand up. I will. Dad, please turn to page 355 in your brown hymnals. Trusting Jesus. Let's uh, sing verses 1, 3, and 4, please.
Our scripture text this morning is Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. <clears throat> you can see by the report on camp this morning that camp is mostly staffed and mostly programmed by the people of our church, which is phenomenal for uh, a very small church. We're so thankful for the dedication, looking upon camp as a mission field, mission opportunity, and the Lord reached down and bless. Now in our last study, we consider the hurt of financial stress. We talked about the volatile economics for the needy poor. Sometimes the poor are oppressed, and that's why they're poor. They're often taken advantage of by those that are in authority. Job enumerated a number of wrongs perpetrated against the poor. Everything from moving the boundary markers of their property so that the rich could confiscate their land, to taking a widow's only ox as security for payment, to forcing the poor to forage for food in already crop-depleted wilderness and picked-over vineyards, even snatching a baby from a mother's breast to pay off a debt. This was going on in Job's day. And all of this and more continues in our day. The wheeler dealers are still working their intrigue to get rich through their wicked schemes and they don't care who they step on. So the poor are pressed. Part of the problem of being under financial stress. Then we looked at the volatile economics of the ambitious wealthy. They have their problems too. We don't have these problems, but they have these problems. We don't think they're much problems because we don't have to experience them, but they have to experience them. We listed four stress points. Number one, an insatiable greed. Now that's their own problem, true. But never being satisfied with the money they have amassed. Just think about that. Never being satisfied. Never being satisfied. Millionaire, not satisfied. Two millionaire, not satisfied. Billionaire, not satisfied. Just always their greed eating at their heart and soul. Secondly, the problem, the fact that goods come and goods go, and the owner sees no profit for his labor. He's just it's just a pass-through, and what he gets to see is to watch the parade. I amass these goods, I expend them. All his life is watching the parade pass by. Thirdly, sleepless nights. He's worried about his money and his fortune. Whereas Solomon says the laborer, his sleep is sweet. He goes to bed at night. He has a good night's rest. And then the fourth problem, wealth hoarded because it's not put to practice, it's not put to good use, or wealth lost through some misfortune. The stock market crashes and the money's gone and people are at their wit's end. Then we close by looking at help for financial stress. God first. Then the necessities of life God will add to you. People that are unsaved don't put God first, but we must. Secondly, 
be biblical about material holdings. Things do wear out. They do become obsolete. There is such a thing as rust and rot and thieves and so on. So there's no security in the things. In things. And then thirdly, remember that none of what you earn or save will buy you or accompany you to eternal life. Can't buy eternal life and it won't take you into the next world. That ought to tell you something about material things. The world, again, doesn't think about spiritual things. They're just out here for the temporal, for what they can get their hands on. Well, that brings us to today's study, and we, we want to look at the subject this morning of the hurt of sudden loss. The hurt of sudden loss. As we come to our study, let's ask the Lord to be with us. Father, we thank you for the good report we heard about camp this morning for the salvation of Chelsea and we pray, Lord, that your blessing will be upon your word as we talk now uh, about what it's like to live as a Christian in a sinful world. We pray that you will help us to get our values right and our priorities straight. The world has their values and their priorities, but they're not straight. They're not righteous. Help us to be righteous in what we value and what we plan for. We ask your blessing upon our time together. Teach us of Christ. May we see him. And we pray these things for his glory and our good. Amen. We're looking at the subject this morning of the hurt of sudden loss. And you'll notice in your bulletin outline the first point that the best made plans, the best plans that you can ever have are doomed to frustration. You say, well, that's not a very pleasant note to start the sermon on. Well, it's true note, and we need to recognize it. Everyone knows that life in a sinful world is not easy. What is more, we know that bad things are going to happen to us. Even if we are the people of God, even if we are under the watchful eye of our Creator, bad things are coming your way. If you haven't figured that one out yet, uh, you're a little late in the game. Sometimes, sometimes God himself sends us trials to test our faith or to refine our faith, as he did in the case of Job. We're going to talk about him later. The Apostle Paul with his thorn in the flesh. David with the rebellion in his own family of his own son Absalom. Elijah, who Jezebel wanted to kill. The Apostles... All of them beaten for preaching Christ. John chapter 4, chapter 5. Trouble, bad times are going to come your way. And part of what we do here on Sunday morning is to point you to the sufficiency of Christ to meet all of your trials in life and to encourage you to be faithful even when bad things come. Paul certainly told it true when he wrote this. We know, he says, that the whole creation, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So he kind of reflects from creation to the present time when he was sitting there writing to the Roman church. Not only so, he says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption 
of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. Romans 8, 22 through 25. So in this text, Paul depicts creation in a state of perpetual childbirth. We could put it that way. Groaning as it were for the baby that has not yet arrived. What baby? Well, the final full redemption of creation which will occur when the believer's body is made anew at the coming of Christ. Creation awaits this because apart from the believer's redemption, none of this will occur. The new heaven, the new earth promised in the scripture centers around what Christ has promised to his people. You see how important your role is? Nothing happens in God's eternal plan apart from what he's doing for and with his people through Christ. So creation is waiting on us. But the promise isn't fulfilled yet. We hope for it. We anticipate it. It has not come. The reality is yet, he says. And if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So he's saying that like creation, the baby hasn't arrived yet. Until it arrives, we groan. But our groaning is with the anticipation that the baby's on the way and will arrive at God's good timing. God is going to come and redeem us from this evil present world. One of the things we do while we're waiting is to make plans to lessen as much as possible the sudden surprise events which cause us loss. Probably everyone listening to me this morning has purchased a life insurance policy or a catastrophic death policy. We do this to lessen the effect of sudden loss. If I die suddenly, I do not want to leave my wife with a huge mortgage debt. No, I want the house paid for to provide for her after I am gone. People buy homeowner policies to protect their properties from unforeseen catastrophes, hurricanes, tornadoes, windstorms, a fire that started from electrical short, a tree fall on the roof. The government, if you're watching television, is pushing flood insurance for which homeowners' policies do not cover. So this is all planning, you see. It's pre-planning for the unknown. We do not know what loss we will experience, but we're almost 100% sure that some loss is going to come our way. Why are we so sure? It's because we live in a cursed world in which judgment for sin is seen everywhere in a groaning creation and we experience these losses ourselves. Now how good, or to say it another way, how successful is our planning? We're out, we're planning. Are we very successful? Well, over, uh, the overarching principle 
to keep in focus is found in Proverbs 19, verse 21. And Solomon says it this way. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Now this is not a prohibition on planning, but it is saying that after you have made your plan, after you've done all you can to hedge yourself against the unknown, it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You cannot plan yourself around or to get around the will of God. You cannot change your future because of your plans. Proverbs 16 verse 3 therefore says this, Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. The Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. And in his heart a man plans his course. But the Lord determines his steps. What Solomon is saying in these Proverbs is that your plan will not trump God's will for you. You know, I've heard some people say, well, I'm not going to buy life insurance. I'm just going to trust God. And, and their, their thinking is kind of like, if I did take the step of planning for my demise, I might be stepping on God's toes and interrupting what he has for my life, or I might be saying that I'm not trusting God. But Solomon is saying here, hey, commit your plans, commit your plans to the Lord, and he will see to it that they succeed. And he's suggesting, of course, in no uncertain terms, go ahead and make your plan, but it's going to be the Lord that determines your steps anyway. You can't step on God's toes or step out of his will because you have a plan. You say it in other ways, because we are not omniscient, because we do not know everything there is to know, it's best, it is best, that God sometimes frustrates our plans, isn't it? In fact, the scripture says that the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord, they stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Psalm 33, verse 10, verse 11. You know, you should remember that the wicked are, are planners too. <laughs> But their plans never grow out of uh, seeking and submitting to the will of God. They are working on a sinful agenda. They got their plans. David says, hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from that noisy crowd of evildoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords and they aim their words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at innocent men. They shoot at him suddenly, without fear. They encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding their snares. They say, who will see them? They plot injustice and they say, we have devised a perfect plan. Surely the mind and heart of man are cunning, but God will shoot them 
with arrows. Suddenly they will be struck down. Psalm 64, verse 2 through 7. Now you see, the arrogance of the wicked keeps them from factoring in the intervention of God in their plans. They treat him as a non-entity who does not see what they are scheming. And if he could see it, he can't do anything about it anyway. And that's what you need to know about evil schemers and evil planners. Isaiah writes, Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do, not, who do their work in darkness, and they think, Who sees us? Who will know? Yeah. You turn things upside down, says God, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? Isaiah 29, verse 15 and 16. But that's our world. That's our sinful world. The sinful planners that are out there. Now hopefully, prayerfully, as believers, we certainly do not want to make evil, godless plans. But sometimes, sometimes our selfishness and arrogance gets the best of us and we proceed with ventures that almost, I say almost, seem to treat God as the pagans do. We do not consult God in our planning. Or we begin to think that our plans have covered all of the loopholes. and We need not rely on divine intervention. Even when we have committed our way to the Lord... We have to be open to change from God. Listen to Job. Job says, My days have passed, and my plans are shattered, and so are the desires of my heart. Job 17, verse 11. One might reason that since Job was a just and upright man, that any plan he had would have had God's purpose in the forefront, and likely that was so. But we do not always know the purpose of God, even when we have the Bible as our guide in making our plans. Listen to Paul's letter to the Church of Rome. He writes this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, Many times. But I have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among other Gentiles. Romans 1, verse 13. Well, I read that, and I, I read, and I have some questions. Didn't God appoint Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentile nations? The answer is yes. Yes, of course. Okay, wasn't Rome the heart of the Gentile world in Paul's day? Mm, yes, yes it was. Didn't Paul plan to come to Rome and, and, and plan to express the will of God and preach to them the gospel? Well, yes. Okay, all that being true, how then is it 
that Paul had, was many times prevented from carrying out his plan to sail to Rome and preach. So we look at that, we say, yes, 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 good, 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 go! But God said, no, no, you're not going. He was prevented from going. He says many times. What's the answer? The answer was, God's timing wasn't right. God's providence had a different passage to Rome planned for Paul. See, what do you mean, different passage? Well, he thought he'd go down, buy his ticket, get on a passenger ship, sail to Rome, visit the church at Rome, get to preach to the people in the street, square, so forth. How did God get him to Rome? He went on a prisoner ship as a prisoner who had made an appeal to Caesar's court. Not exactly in Paul's schedule, in his plan, but that's how God had him go. And God has many ways of accomplishing his plan, and his ways may interfere with your plans. Though in a larger sense, your plans may be good and right, but the timing is off. So I'm saying here, first point, the best made plans with good motives, biblical support, the best made plans are doomed at times for the frustration of God, by God. Just because you made it your plan and just because you prayed over it and just because you have good biblical support for what you're doing doesn't necessarily mean God's green light. Go with it, go with it, go with it. He might hold up a red light and say, stop, halt. Got something else for you. Secondly, God's plan for his people will include surprises, including sudden loss. It's obvious, for example, that Job's estate plans included a vast amount of holdings in livestock. Remember, no insurance companies in Job's day. There are no New York life, no mutual of Omaha. So if you wanted to provide for your wife and children, you had to self-insure. That is to say, you did this by amassing tangible assets. No one's going to take care of my family if I die, Job thought. I got to do it. How am I going to do it? I'm going to amass tangible assets. And this Job did. His inventory is given in verse 3 of his book. It says he owns 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. A yoke is at least two, so there's a thousand more. 500 donkeys. And a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all of the people of the East. You see what's going on here. Got over 10,000 in livestock. His holdings were massive. But all with a plan to provide for his wife and his ten children. He's got a large family. But unbeknown to Job, God had other plans. Plans hidden completely from Job and never really explained to him. 
God would have Job become the test case of a man of faith and righteousness who served God out of love for God and not because God made him rich. A lesson Satan knew little about. So the surprise, the sudden loss that Job could never have planned for occurred at the hands of Satan by God's permission. In a day, a day, a 24-hour period, he lost all of his material goods, most of his servants, all of his children through death, for whom he had amassed the estate. This was a loss that he could not foresee and which no insurance policy could rectify. Now observe what Solomon says in our text, verse 11. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. The items stated in this list are all things for which people plan. A race. Yeah. A race demands running techniques to make a person swift of foot. And so what do we see? People that are going to enter a race, they're out on the track, practicing, building speed, building endurance, building stamina. Next month, I can assure you, on the streets of Lapeer, we will see the high schoolers out there running along the streets, on the, on the sidewalks, of course. Well, what are they doing? They're getting ready for track. Track and field. They're planning. Battles. What about battles? Well, they're won by being stronger than the enemy, yes. Physically, yes. But also mental acuity. Plans. Strategies. Going to do this. Going to do that. When this happens, this is what we do. I like to read about the civil war of our country and to see how the men planned their battles and strategies. And food, what about that? That doesn't just grow on trees and in fields. There has to be some wise agricultural knowledge, when to plant, the soil prep, and all of those kind of things. And wealth. Well, wealth is not simply a matter of being a brilliant businessman with an excellent grasp of market trends have to know all of these various things. So all of this pre-planning, it's good. It's good as far as it goes. We ought not to just leap before we look. Faith does not mean we shift our brains into neutral and fail to reason through a certain course of action that we're contemplating taking. Solomon is not against planning. God is not against planning. But the splinter in the finger, which no one plans for, and which no one is able to plan for, is the universal truth that Solomon states in the last phrase of verse 11. Time and chance happen to them all. What all? All the planned for activities mentioned in this verse. The race, the battle, food, wealth, favor for the learned. All these guys planning, 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 planning. Yeah, but time and chance is going to come to them. Lance Armstrong, seven-time winner of the Tour de France cycle race in France, entered the Ironman 
triathlon this spring at Florida's Lake Eva. The triathlon is a 70.3 mile race consisting of swimming 1.2 miles, biking 56 miles, and running the last 13.1 miles. That's why it's called a triathlon. Three things you got to compete in in this one race. I'm tired just thinking about it. Well, there were 1,800, 1,800 professional athletes competing in this triathlon. All who had planned, all who had trained for this race, all in top shape for the grueling ordeal. But all the planning, all the training notwithstanding, time and chance would have it that the first leg of the race, which is the swimming leg, had all of the contestants standing in the water by the docks at Lake Eva, wherein a highly toxic substance was concentrated, unbeknown to the race officials and the Lake Eva manager. The legs of the contestants began to burn and tingle and go numb. They were thinking of calling the race, but they didn't. Afterwards, they discovered that aquathol, a deadly toxin, and has numerous warnings on its label, one stating toxic to mammals. According to the warnings, aquathol is absorbed through the skin, the eyes, the mouth, and it can caused permanent tissue damage, especially to the eyes. And there were also some mention in the literature of blood problems with severe exposure. Well, the race went ahead anyway as scheduled, and Lance Armstrong won by pushing through the pain, as he is known for doing in all of his other competitions. Well, what is Aquathol? It's used to control unwanted algae and aquatic plants in the lake. But it is to be avoided by all mammals, including human beings, for 7 to 25 days after the application. Well, the race took place only nine days after the application. Who knew? The race officials didn't know. Well, the park officials knew, but they weren't talking. Time and chance positioned all these top athletes in the same location for a race that they were ill-prepared for. Ill-prepared because they didn't know about the sudden consequences that were laying, lying for them there in the water, this exposure to a toxin that no one had planned. This is life, brethren. This is your life, not just the life of athletes. All of your careful planning notwithstanding, time and chance, that is, the providence of God, will throw you a curveball that you are not expecting. It'll come suddenly, often without warning, and your plans will be shattered as with Job's. And then what? Do you get angry with God? Do you give up on God because everything did not go as you had anticipated? Or do you push through the pain, still believing, still trusting, all the while knowing and claiming God's promises? As we're learning about in the adult class. 
Paul writes it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8 and following. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-control, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Protect your brains. Don't lose your hope. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Paul is reminding his readers of God's plan, and that God's plan supersedes and overshadows your plans. And God's plan is always good for you, always glorifying to himself. That's something the world knows nothing about. Now, this being so, we make our plans, but then we have to factor in the fact, time and chance, providence may have something different. It may sudden, be sudden. It might be something catastrophic. It's, it's certainly going to be something you didn't plan for. Then what? Well, that's the second part of our study. God's help for sudden loss. How does God handle this with his people? Not by exemption, but by sustaining grace. The lying preachers on television would have their hearers believe that once they become a Christian, their ship will come in. Their health issues will just disappear. Money will pour in to pay for every need and not only every need, but all the luxuries you want. You will advance in popularity, in power, in prestige. That's what they preach. Guess what? None of this is true. None of it. None of this can be supported by the biblical histories or the biblical principles. Job was wealthy beyond your wildest dreams, but time and chance changed all that. In a day, he was faced with sudden loss, hurtful loss, unimaginable loss. How'd you like to lose all your children in a day? I don't care if you have one child or ten. And since the loss included all of his material wealth, he could not rectify anything. Certainly no amount of money would have brought his children back to him. The false preachers would have you believe that when you become a Christian, you are exempt from sudden losses like this. But God says otherwise. The Bible portrays God not as one who is guilty of Satan's lie, his lie, and it's coming out of his own lips. Have you not put a hedge around him? Satan says of Job, his household, everything he has. You bless the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Job 1, verse 10 and 11. Satan's lie says this. God builds hedges around believers so that nothing bad can happen to them or will happen to them. Everything will be opulent and secure. 
This is the lie of the false teachers of our day as well, who are inspired by the evil one. Peter, speaking of the false teachers of his day, describes them in this way. Listen to his description. Peter, these men, he says, are springs without water. What's a spring without water? It's a hole in the ground. It's a dry hole. Springs without water. Mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing, get it now, by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever he's mastered, has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. 2 Peter 2, verse 17 through 20. I would say it this way. They promise people the moon. And they appeal to the lust. Think of the lust. Rich. God will make you rich if you become a Christian. God will give you power, authority, prestige, fame. No health issues. Who wouldn't want that? Who, wouldn't want, who out there in, in uh, radio TV land wouldn't want that? So that's the way they make their appeal. They promise people the moon and in God's name, no less. And they deliver wood, hay, and stubble. The appeal is to the flesh, to the cravings of sinful men. They're out to capture the gullible with fanciful lies. Now Job understood God in his true nature, saying this, The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job 1, verse 21. What's it? he's saying? Well, it, Job recognized God's hand in the giving of his great wealth, his large family. But also he recognized God in the taking away of all these things. And even more importantly, he tells us, that in either case, the giving or the taking, God's name is to be praised. Wow. How many of us have a view of God like that? And God's commentary of Job was this. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Verse 22. In other words, it wasn't wrong, it wasn't sin for God to take away all of Job's possession and family in these sudden and unforeseen losses. God owes us nothing. All the good we receive is grace. Grace, brethren. Gifts. It's not deserved. We didn't earn it. God doesn't owe us. It's grace. And so Job was not exempt from life's sudden and catastrophic events. God does not exempt us 
what he does is sustain us. Jesus' prayer the night of his crucifixion was this, my prayer, Father, is not that you take them, the disciples, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. John 17, verse 15. You see, we want to be free. We want to be free from temptation. We want to be free from seduction and, and ruin. But God says, I am going to leave you right there, right in the world, in Satan's domain. But what I will do for you is protect you from the evil one. And that to me is Satan on a leash. Satan not being able to do everything he wants to do, just as in the case of Job. It is Job all over again. Elijah had a glorious victory over Satan and the evil prophets of Baal. But in the end, Jezebel sought his life. He was afraid. Says he was afraid. So he ran. He fell into a blue slump saying to God, here he's out in the desert running from Jezebel, and he says to God, I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. 1 Kings 19, verse 14. And God said to him in verse 18, Ah, the only one left? No, 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 Elijah, you don't got that right. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. You think you're the only righteous one left in the nation? I can assure you, you're not. So perception sometimes, brethren, are very wrong. We get into a blue slump like Elijah, and we begin to say to God, you know, I've been really faithful to you, and now what? Now look at they're out to get me. Where are you? It's 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 his way of saying, no, maybe I did all this work for you, God, for nothing. Paul pleaded with Jesus to remove the satanic demon who was torment his tormenting thorn in the flesh. But God refused to do it. Instead, he told Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, my power, is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. I'm not doing it, Paul. I'm not healing you. I'm leaving the thorn. But what I will do for you is I will sustain you. My grace will be with you. I'll show you my power in your weakness. Brethren, you will not be exempt from sudden and catastrophic loss, but you will be given grace to endure. I think that's the message of the gospel. Not the message of the false TV preachers who are saying, oh, everything's going to be rosy once you become a Christian. No, it's the message of the gospel to the world is, look at these Christians 
They're getting beat up the same way as what we go through. And yet look at their spirit. Look at their faith. Look at how they trust the Lord. Look at their lives. Look at the righteous way they handle the problems of life. Number two, God brings good out of bad. Now he's the only one that does this. The only one. But he does it. Satan can bring worse out of bad. When Job did not break spiritually because of all of his material loss and the loss of his family, Satan said to God, Well, you know, skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life. Job 2 verse 4. And so God gave Satan permission to escalate his attack from taking things that Job cherished away from him to attacking Job directly. You all know the story. It was covered with boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Satan can always think of something more evil to do to you. You be sure of that. But only God can bring good out of bad. The text is Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that in all things, even the bad things, in all things, God works... For the good of those who love him, to those who have been called according to his purpose. Paul writes, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Because we know that suffering, there's the bad, produces, here's the good, perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. Romans 5, verse 3 and 4. Suffering becomes a blessing in the hands of God because of what it produces. And so he says again, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You've got to get a right perspective. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. What Satan means to be our loss, God means to be our salvation. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Satan's trying to break us, and God's trying to make us into the image of his beloved Son. You've heard the expression, never judge a book by its cover. What about never judge a Christian by the external trials that he or she is undergoing? The world might conclude that God hates you. When the reality is, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, says God. So be earnest and repent. Revelation 3, verse 19. Or again, the writer of Hebrews, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Hebrews 12, verse 10. Why is holiness important? Verse 14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. God brings good out of bad. Only He does this. But He does it for His people. And then number three, whatever your experience of sudden loss, Christ makes up for it. Not only is Jesus the replacement for your loss, but He knows how to bring salvation from the loss. Mary and Martha went and sent word to Jesus across the Jordan 
that their brother and Jesus' dear friend, Lazarus, was very ill. So, did Jesus run back and say, Oh boy, i got to get back there, back to Bethany. Let's go, guys. Chop, chop. Our friend Lazarus is sick. i got to get there and heal him. No, he didn't do that at all. It says he delayed a few more days. What? What? Wait, what? Didn't he understand the seriousness of the situation? If he doesn't get over there, something's going bad. What's going to happen? Lazarus is going to die. Well, Lazarus did die. And his two sisters were already in mourning. And the scripture says, John 11, verse 19, Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss. There it is, the loss of their brother. Don't we do the same as these Jews? Don't we attend funerals to be a comfort to the family member who has lost someone they loved? That's all we can do. That's all we can do. And as comforting as it may be to have friends share your grief, Jesus does something more, much more. He can say to the grieving sisters, your brother will rise again. John 11, verse 23. And when Martha heard that, she thought in her mind that Jesus was talking about the resurrection morning at the second coming of Christ. It shows she was a good theologian, right? She knew her Bible. She knew the doctrines of Scripture. And she said something to the effect, well, I know he'll rise again in the last day when you come back in all of your glory. Yeah, that's resurrection day. But he corrects her. And his correction was this. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? John 11, verse 25 and 26. I'm not talking about the future day. I'm not talking about resurrection day in the day of judgment. I'm talking about me as the resurrection and the life. You see, brethren, resurrection of the dead is not a date on the calendar somewhere in the distant future. Resurrection is here and now for all who believe. Jesus is the life you need and he makes up for all of your loss. Your friend, your family, your real estate, your financial losses. He came into this sinful world to seek for you, to find you, to give you life, and life more abundantly than you have ever experienced. When Lazarus walked out alive from his tomb, his sisters experienced a greater love and appreciation for him, and might I say for the Lord, than ever existed before Lazarus became ill. We got him back. He's back. He's alive. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, Christ. They went through the loss. They came out of the loss 
on the merit and the power of Almighty Christ. And you need to do the same. Cast your sin. Cast your hurt. Cast your anger. Cast your fears. All of these things on Jesus. And watch as He becomes more precious than all that you've lost. Is He that to you this morning? I hope so. If not, may you come to Christ. All this tangible world, the physical things that we put so much emphasis upon. You can't see how losing those things is good for us. It's good for you if it brings you to Christ, if it brings you closer to Christ, that he might become your all in all. Let's pray. Holy Father, send your spirit of comfort to us. We all do face sudden loss. Sudden loss. We make our plans, yes. It's good that we do that. We ought to keep God in our plans, yes. But even in the making of our plans, we should keep in the back of our mind that God may have some other course of action for us. And that other course of action might include sudden loss. Something we didn't count on. A real bump in the road. Maybe something devastating. A pit in the road that has no bottom. Lord, help us to see that even in those situations, though time and chance comes to us all, God is with us. We are the people of God. We are the sheep of his pasture. Please help us with this because bad things come to us all. So it's how we handle them, how we relate to them that marks the difference between us and the people of the world. Thank you, dear Christ, for being the life, our life, Help us to see that you are the resurrection and the life. That real life is in you. Not in material things. Not even in this world. But in the joy of knowing sins forgiven. And the glory of Christ's salvation. Bless us Lord with these truths. Help us with our doubts and fears. And our frustrations. May that just make us trust you all the more. In Jesus name. Amen. Our closing hymn, again, from the Brown Hymnal, this time number 369, 369 in the Brown Hymnal. Andrea's going to come and lead us. Oh, Jesus, I have promised, we'll sing all three verses, to serve you to the end. Have you made that promise to God? He goes on and says, Be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if you are by my side, nor wander from the pathway if you will be my guide. You see that dependence? Dependence? Dependence upon Christ. Let's stand together and sing.
him. Good prayer for us to pray. All right, tonight at 6 o'clock, we'll be meeting in the basement to study Pilgrim's Progress, the ongoing trek of hopeful and Christian as they march towards the celestial city. See you at 6.